There's a story about a US highway patrolman who pulled over a car, puttering along a busy freeway at 22 miles an hour. Inside he discovered five elderly people, but he also noticed that while the driver was calm, the rest of the passengers were all white as a sheet. Before he could speak, the driver began to protest, Officer, I don't understand why you stopped me. I was driving the exact speed limit for this road. So the patrolman attempted to explain, I didn't stop you for speeding, he said, but because slow driving on a freeway can be just as dangerous. But I just saw the sign and it said that the speed limit is 22 miles per hour. I'm afraid you made a mistake, the officer replied. 22 isn't the speed limit, it's the number of the highway. But you've been driving so slowly that I can't understand why your passengers are looking so shaken. Oh, don't worry about them, the driver said. They'll be fine in a few minutes. We just turned off Route 134. <laughs> or 401, maybe, if you're in Ontario. Now, joking aside, there are times in all of our lives when we can feel like we've spent a little too long in the fast lane. And this is traditionally the main season in the year when many try to slow down a bit and take a break. We all need to do that, of course, even with our church work. And the other good news is that periods of rest can also be occasions for spiritual renewal. If we take time to refocus on what really counts in our Christian lives, they can present us with golden opportunities to renew our relationship with God in Christ. In that sense, as many others. I believe that this morning's passage from first, the first chapter of Colossians goes right to the heart of the matter because it focuses so single-mindedly on the person and work of Jesus Christ. So as we begin this new sermon series, we're reminded of life-changing truths that can encourage and inspire us wherever we are on our spiritual journey and whatever challenges we may face. The Apostle Paul's central theme in these verses is to share supremacy and the infinite glory of Christ. More than this, he specifically highlights three crucial aspects of Christ's role that have a vital bearing, I believe, on who we are as the people of God. For the Apostle... Christ is the supreme revealer. He is the incarnate revelation of God. He is the ultimate reconciler between God and humanity. And he is our glorious redeemer 
from the penalty and power of sin. So as we focus or we refocus on these amazing spiritual realities, we can go deeper into the kind of lasting rest and renewal that Christ alone has to offer in a living, loving relationship with him. Before I returned to the church, or really began seriously in the church in my late twenties, I had a number of serious objections to Christianity. Two of the main ones were that I struggled with the whole idea of exercising faith in an unseen God, which is kind of the point, if you think about it. I also saw the Christian religion as a series of rigid rules and regulations that would simply cramp my style. Despite all this, I was actively engaged, almost unwittingly at times, on quite a lengthy spiritual quest that took me down all sorts of blind alleys. One of the most alluring for me, as for many others at that time in the 1970s and 80s, was Eastern religion. And two of the things that I find, found most attractive in some of its belief systems were their asceticism and mysticism. Especially this thought that by disciplining mind and body I could somehow attain heightened levels of religious understanding or consciousness. At one point, that even involved me trying to stand on my head in my teenage bedroom, much to the consternation of my bewildered parents. Now, I say all this not to belittle the real truth and moral value that can sometimes be found in non-Christian religions. But I do want to suggest that the problems that Paul addresses in Colossians are not simply quaint relics of an ancient or outdated past. They're actually very relevant today. The Apostle seems to have written Colossians in about 60 AD to a group of Christians in the Roman province of Asia in what would now be modern day Turkey when he was in prison for his faith in Rome. There was no general postal system in those days of course and there certainly wasn't email. So he sent the letter to the church of Colossae which had been founded by his colleague Epaphras with another fellow minister named Tychicus who is mentioned in the last chapter. As in all his letters and it's very important to remember this when approaching any of Paul's epistles he has quite specific purposes in mind. But in the absence of other evidence, we have to reconstruct them from the letter itself. And apart from offering general words of greeting and affirmation, as in the first eight verses of chapter 1, and some very practical, ethical teaching later in the epistle, his major focus 
is on countering what scholars have often called the Colossian heresy. The Colossian heresy. A huge amount of academic labour has been devoted to trying to pin down the exact details of this heresy and it's still a question of dispute. But in very broad terms, the great Bible scholar, the late F.F. Bruce, has defined its central claim as well as anyone. And here I quote from his excellent commentary. The Colossian heresy centred on the belief that the fullness of God could be appreciated only by mystical experience for which ascetic preparation was necessary. In other words, when Paul writes, he knows that there are false teachers in the region of Colossae who are arguing that if you really want to know God, if you want to get all the secrets and and you want to find salvation, simple faith just isn't enough. You have to work at certain mystical practices to gain special insights. And what is Paul's response to this? It is to stress the centrality and supremacy of the person, the work and the teachings of Jesus Christ. After a formal greeting in verses 1 and 2, and all the New Testament letters have that, Paul expresses prayerful thanksgiving for his readers' faith and love in verses 3 through 8, together with his confidence that the gospel will continue to bear fruit in and among them. The apostle also prays in the marvellous words of verses 9 through 14 for the Colossians' wisdom and understanding that the Holy Spirit gives for their growth in good works as well as Christian knowledge for their strength, endurance and patience and for their spiritual inheritance of redemption and forgiveness in Christ. It can be so tempting for us, can't it, to limit our prayers to a kind of shopping list of requests for various practical needs, mostly for ourselves. But a passage like this can surely help remind us that the most valuable thing that we can ever ask of God for another person actually centres on the kind of spiritual growth that will sometimes find more fertile ground in times of hardship than in periods of plenty. And what is the highest wisdom and understanding that we can ever attain? How can we acquire this? It's not found in philosophical or theological propositions arrived at through laborious argumentation. It's not a matter of objective fact resulting from scientific investigation. It's not a mathematical equation based on rigorous calculation. It's not, as some of the Colossians seems to have thought, a state of mystical enlightenment realised through self-denial. It is, the Apostle says, the intimate and very personal knowledge of God that can only come through knowing Jesus Christ as our revealer, our reconciler 
and our Redeemer. Our Revealer, our Reconciler and our Redeemer. A woman named Marjorie Talcott was a young mother with a child during the Great Depression of the 1930s. The family managed to scrape their way through. But as Christmas approached one year, she told how she and her husband were disappointed that they couldn't afford any gifts. A week before Christmas Day, they explained this to their six-year-old son, Pete. But I'll tell you what we can do, said Marjorie's husband. We can make pictures of the presents that we'd like to give to each other. So they all set to work and by the time the big day arrived, the family rose to find their skimpy little tree made magnificent by pictures of various gifts with which the parents had adorned it. There was luxury beyond imagination for people in their circumstances. A black limousine and a red speedboat for dad, a diamond bracelet a new coat for mum, a camping tent, even a a swimming pool for Pete. When Pete finally pulled out his present, Marjorie wrote years later, it gave rise to the richest, most satisfying Christmas that they had ever had. It was a simple crayon drawing of a man, a woman and a child with their arms around each other and underneath there was one simple word us us it actually took a Christmas without the usual gifts Marjorie said to remind them that the greatest gift that we can ever offer is ourselves and in a wonderful hymn of praise In verses 15 through 20, Paul reminds his readers so powerfully that that's what God has done by sending Jesus Christ as the supreme revealer of God's nature and saving purposes, as the ultimate reconciler between God and humanity and as our perfect redeemer from the penalty and power of sin. As the supreme revealer, and revelation of God Christ is the image of the invisible God the apostle writes in verse 15 following he is the firstborn over all creation how so? because as God the son he was instrumental in the very creation of the universe when in or I prefer the translation by him all things in heaven and on earth were created visible and invisible. In that sense, no created being can be Christ's equal, including the different angelic forces which the Apostle lists as thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. No, all things have been created through him and for him, Paul repeats. He is before him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. 
It's difficult to imagine, surely, a more comprehensive, a stronger statement of Christ's divinity than the Apostle gives here. And as such, if we accept them, these words obviously give the lie to those who would diminish Jesus' Godhead in any way or claim that any other person or deity can provide an equal revelation of God. What is more, in revealing God as he has, Jesus has also brought a possibility of reconciliation with God that goes way beyond what anyone or anything else ever has. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him, Paul continues in verses 19 and 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on heaven, on earth, we all know that everyone makes mistakes, including those who imagine that they might live good enough lives to meet God's standards. So before we come to Christ, we are all alienated from God, to use the Apostle's words in verse 21. We were enemies in our minds because of our evil behaviour. But now, Paul continues, Christ has brought permanent, he has brought radical change and transformation. How so? By becoming our Redeemer. Quite literally, the one who has paid the price to set us free. In his 16th century classic, The Book of Martyrs, John Fox tells the story of a Christian monk or hermit named Telemachus who went on a pilgrimage to Rome in the 4th century. When he he noticed crowds flocking to the Colosseum, he followed them in only to witness a sight that completely repulsed him. It seems that Emperor Honorius was celebrating a triumph over the Goths and gladiators were fighting. Telemachus watched with horror as people died and the, and the crowds cheered until eventually he could stand no more. So this bareheaded, robed figure ran towards two gladiators locked in battle, Fox reported, grabbed one of them pulled him away, then he exhorted the gladiators and appealed to the crowd not to break God's law against murder. The response was anything but favourable. Angry voices drowned Telemachus out, demanding that the, the spectacle continue and driven by the anger of the crowd, the gladiators cut him to the ground. But his death was not in vain. Eventually, Honorius declared an end to gladiatorial battles at the Colosseum and Fox claims, rightly or wrongly, that Telemachus' protest was decisive in this decision. In that sense, this brave hermit reportedly played a significant part in bringing peace and reconciliation to the most hostile of arenas, but he did so by making the ultimate sacrifice, by giving his life for others. And that is precisely what Christ did to end the enmity between God and humankind caused by human sin. 
according to Colossians 1. Only Christ did it on a much bigger, much more universal, much more inclusive scale. What is more, Christ proved his unique status and ability to achieve such a miraculous work of reconciliation by supernaturally rising from the dead after his sacrificial death on the cross of Calvary. So Christ is our ultimate redeemer. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, the Apostle says in verses 13 and 14 of our passage, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. How so? Christ has now reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation Paul tells his readers in verse 22 he has made peace through his blood shed on the cross according to verse 20 in other words Christ has borne the punishment that we deserved he has paid the price that we owed That's the marvellous, that's the the life-changing truth of the Christian gospel that can set us free. So what is the ultimate message of these opening verses of Colossians? For me, it is the supremacy of Christ as the true revealer of God, as the only true reconciler with God and as our ultimate redeemer from the consequences of human sin, from the consequences of our own mistakes. It is the uniqueness and all-sufficiency of Christ to answer the deepest needs, the most pressing problems of the human condition and to do so through a living, loving relationship with him that we receive and that we discover by faith. In that sense, Paul's concluding call in verse 23 of our passage, that his readers continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, can also surely become ours this morning. And it's especially appropriate as things slow down for the summer and we begin to think ahead to the fall. For it is in Christ, it is through Christ that we can not only meet God in person, God in the flesh, even the very fullness of God. It is in and through him that we can also grow in our faith. That we can find the strength that we need to exercise true consistency and integrity in our Christian lives. So as Paul reminds his readers in verse 23 and elsewhere of the gospel you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, he also underlines that the truth of this gospel doesn't depend on our own efforts. However self-sacrificial we may be, It has nothing to do with the pursuit of the Colossian or any other heresy, however mystical 
or enlightened it may sound. No, it all relies on Christ. It all comes back to our relationship with him. And whether we have known him our whole lives or we have recently started, whether our faith is strong or weak or just beginning, we could do nothing better than to state or restate, to register or renew our trust in him to save us and sustain us today and every other day of our lives. Let's bow our heads.